So have you ever had to spend more than $4,000 on something? <laughs> I mean, that's 4K. I mean, that's a lot. So it's probably something big, right? I mean, it was, you know, probably something, you know, to do with your health or, you know, probably something to do with, you know, your house, maybe something for a transportation need that you have, uh, maybe something for your makeup bag. Now, if that last one sounds off to you, then you have not recently been makeup shopping with your teenage daughter. Until a few weeks ago, I did not realize that there was a section known as the high-end section in a makeup store, but I know that now. There's a boutique in London that is offering a six-month tailor-made makeup plan based on your DNA for the rock-bottom price of only $4,320. Yeah, I mean... For that kind of money for 4K, the makeup should be made out of 24K is what I'm thinking. That's some serious foundation. That's some serious lip gloss. That's some serious money for makeup. So why in the world would someone spend that kind of money on makeup? Now, if you're a guy, you're thinking, well, I wouldn't (laughs) spend that kind of money on makeup. All right, that's fair. So I just want to make sure nobody gets left out of the conversation. So why is it that someone... And looking for a sports and leisure vehicle for the neighborhood or for vacation uh, or for even a, a vehicle to use during hunting season, why is it that someone would look at the $4,000 vehicle and skip over that and double up for the one that's green and has yellow seats? Why is it that we would look toward that which is more expensive in almost anything that we often do? Well, here's why. The reason why that someone would want to buy some fancy blush or the reason why that someone would want to buy a fancy toy to to drive through the brush is because we have a beauty radar. We have a, a natural desire for beauty. There's something inside of us. It is innate. It is created in us that we love beauty. So what kind of beauty? Well, that's where things can get a little bit interesting, right? Because, see, some people think that garnet is beautiful. And some people think that orange is beautiful. And some people don't think that garnet or orange are beautiful in any way, shape, or form. Some people think that a plate of cooked bacon is beautiful. Some people don't. Bless their hearts. They they, they just don't. I I don't know why, but they don't. So so there's this sense that we all have a subjective opinion of beauty, that that beauty at times is kind of defined by our opinion. But it can't only be that way, right? I mean, beauty can't only be subjective. It can't only be defined by my opinion or by your opinion. I mean, even, even in the deepest parts of our minds, we know at the very least that's a little bit shallow and it's a lot of bit irrational. It's got to be more than subjective. The Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy has an entry that reads like this. If beauty is entirely subjective, that is, if anything that anyone holds to be or experiences as beautiful is beautiful, then it seems that the word has no meaning. Or that we are not communicating anything when we call something beautiful except perhaps an approving personal attitude. So, 
how can we get beauty beyond just being subjective? How can we get beauty beyond just being a personal approving attitude? How can we really bring some meaning to the word beauty? Well, we're going to look to the first church and see if they can't help us find some answers to that question. Listen to Acts chapter 2, a little bit of verse 46, but the first part of verse 47. And day by day, they were praising God. Last couple of Sundays, we've looked at what the other things they were doing day by day were. They were going to the temple day by day. They were going to each other's homes day by day. And and what were they doing as they were going to the temple and going to each other's homes? Well, they were praising God. But what does it mean to praise something? Well, it means to express admiration. It means to express a sense of honor. It means to express some respect, to show some gratitude. We do that all the time, right? You might admire an athlete. You might respect a leader in the community. You might show gratitude to a parent or a grandparent or a friend. We know what it means to praise others for their kindness in our lives. And this word here for praise, in the original Greek language, it also means to recommend to someone based on a promise, based on a vow. The scene that I have in my mind is, is kind of like what happens at a wedding. You know, at the very end of the wedding, the couple turns and they, they face the audience. And then the minister, you know, says, ladies and gentlemen, I, you know, present to you Mr. Ned and Nadine Niederlander. You know, whatever their names are. You know, here, here they are, you know. And, and everybody just looks and everybody's smiling and everybody's excited and, and some people are tearing up. It's this moment of love and devotion and joy. Everyone in the room is like, oh, this is, this is good. Because what that minister is doing is saying, look, look here, look, look at this expression of love. Rejoice with them. Be, be happy with them. Day by day, the first church, they were gathering together and they were praising God. In other words, what they were doing is they were saying, look, look at God. Look at who he is. Here, here's love. Love that's as vast as the ocean. Mercy and kindness that's wider than the sea. Look, rejoice in God. Be happy in God. They did this day by day. They did this with consistency. They did it at church. They did it away from church. They did it in each other's homes. They were together consistently admiring God. They were respecting God. They were showing gratitude to God. They were honoring God. They were recommending the greatness of God to each other, and they were also recommending the greatness of God to people that they didn't even know. And they were doing all of this based on a promise, based on a vow. What kind of promise, what kind of vow would move them to this kind of praise? Well, the promise and the vow goes a little bit like this. Matthew 28, verse 6. He is not here, for he is risen just as he said. The Old Testament is filled with more than 300, 300 very specific prophecies about Jesus Christ. And hundreds of years after those prophecies were announced... Every single one of those prophecies perfectly was fulfilled. I've shared with you before the notations of the late college professor, Peter Stoner, who said that if you just took eight of those more than 300 prophecies, just just took eight of them, 
The probability that those would come true the way that they came true, the probability was 1 times 10 to the 17th power. That's a lot of zeros. So for those of us who didn't get far past long division, Stoner gave us a a really good word picture, something to, to hang your hat on. He said, imagine you have a silver dollar, and you make a mark on that silver dollar. And then you take that silver dollar and you, you throw it in with a lot of other silver dollars. Well, how many silver dollars? Well, enough silver dollars to go all the way across the state of Texas two feet deep. That's a lot of coin. And then he said, blindfold a man and send him out across the state. Let him go anywhere he wants to go. But he can only pick up one silver dollar. And this is what Stoner says. His chances of picking up the marked silver dollar are the same chance that the prophets would have had of writing just these eight prophecies apart from divine inspiration and having them all come true in one man. In other words, the likelihood that the prophecies about Jesus would come true were way far beyond slim and none. And yet, every single one was fulfilled. Every promise was kept. Every vow was made real. And so Jesus, as he approached the cross, had a pretty good track record of authenticity. He had a pretty good track record of making sure that he sticks to his word. But crucifixion is one thing, and resurrection is another. You see, we don't just say that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. We claim and profess and proclaim and believe that Jesus came back from the dead three days later. See, our, our belief, our motto, what we repeat over and over again never changes. He is not here. He's risen just as he said, just as he said. Now, somebody might say, you know, that's an intriguing story, the resurrection of Jesus. I'm sure it's very good and helpful for some enjoyable services around the springtime. But isn't it kind of ridiculous in this day and age to believe in something like that? Paul Perkins, a pastor in London, he was studying physics the first time he started looking at the claims about Jesus Christ. He said that that he heard that, that Christians believed that this man came back from the dead, and he thought to himself, man, Bless their hearts, they've all lost their senses. But then he met some Christians that he didn't think were crazy. He met some Christians that were were kind and gracious, that were hospitable and intelligent, and they believed that Jesus rose from the dead. And so he started looking at the evidence, and he even looked at the evidence through a, a scientific mindset. This is what he writes. Of course, a man rising from the dead breaks the normal laws of nature, But those laws don't say what has to happen. They merely describe what normally does happen. When you go to unusual circumstances, like down to absolute zero temperature, up to the speed of light, or back to the beginning of time, those are very unusual circumstances, and different laws apply. So I came to realize that if God had stepped into the world he'd created and become a man, that would be a pretty unusual, in fact, unique set of circumstances. Under those conditions, different laws would apply. And it would be no surprise if God's entrance into the world and the departure from it broke all the normal laws of life and death 
perhaps a virgin birth, perhaps rising from the dead. So, maybe it's not so ridiculous after all. Maybe it's reasonable that if Jesus was and is God, that he must have risen from the dead. That was from someone who did not believe the story and now does. But the possibility of Jesus rising from the dead is one thing. Him actually rising from the dead, well, that's a completely different thing. So, where's this evidence? Well, naturally, because you're inside a church, we're going to encourage you to to turn to the Bible. We're going to encourage you to to grab a Bible and and maybe look at a Bible app and, and start reading maybe in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then read in Acts, and then read maybe in First and Second Peter. Look at, look at eyewitness accounts to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We'd encourage you to start there. But then we'd also encourage you to know that there's historical documentation, that the Romans and the Greeks, the Jewish historians, they, they wrote about the crucifixion of Jesus. They examined these notions of the resurrection of Jesus either. They wrote down about those things. And there are big, huge, gigantic, thick books that will tell you all about it. But in case you don't have time for big, huge, gigantic, thick books, I'll give you a couple of smaller books uh, that could uh, at least get you in the conversation. A book by William Lane Craig called The Sun Rises and a book by Gary Habermas and Anthony Flew called Did the Resurrection Happen? I'll post those somewhere uh, on our website so you can get them later. What you're going to find, though, if you look through the Bible, what you're going to find if you look through these historical documentations is this, that Jesus of Nazareth was brutally and physically beaten. You'll find that Jesus was executed by professional executors. You'll find that the body of Jesus, the dead body of Jesus, was was wrapped in burial clothes, and it was filled with, with burial spices, and that wrapped body was put into a burial cave in a cemetery. And that wrapped body in that burial cave in that cemetery had no access to food or water or medicine. And that wrapped body in that tomb, in that cave, it was well-sealed, it was well-marked, and there were well-trained professional Roman soldiers that were stationed outside of that tomb. And yet still, today, we tell you this, he is not there. He's not there. He is risen just as he said. 700 years before Jesus was brought into this world, God was announcing to Isaiah what was going to happen with Jesus. And this is what Isaiah wrote down, Isaiah 53, verse 10. But the Lord was pleased to crush him. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. What do you think of when you think of the word prosper? I mean, you usually think of, you know, somebody who got a good education and, or maybe somebody who got a decent job and, and, you know, they got married and they had kids and they've raised a family and, and now their kids have a good education or, or a decent job, something along those lines. You know, we think of prospering along those lines. We usually don't think of prospering as a man being executed on a tree. That's not usually what we connect with the word prosper. But see, the tree was not the end of the story for Jesus. 
You see, there was more to his story. See, the prospering of Jesus was because God kept a promise. And what was the promise that God kept? He is not here. He has risen. See, that's, that's the promise. The resurrection is the promise that was kept. The resurrection is the vow that was fulfilled. The resurrection is the prospering of Jesus that was foretold 700 years before he was even born. And the prospering of Jesus had an impact on the people that followed him. You see, his prospering led to their prospering. And not just to their prospering, but it changed them. The resurrection of Jesus changed the people who were following him. I think I heard it put one time like this, that Peter was scared of a middle school girl before the resurrection. And then after the resurrection, with boldness, he graciously defied threats from leaders in the community. Why? Because he had seen the risen Jesus. And what did all of this do to those people in that first church? Well, here's what happened. They started praising God. (laughs) They couldn't help it. They were overwhelmed and stunned. See, the the promise of God had been fulfilled. Jesus didn't stay dead. He didn't stay in the grave. So they had this fantastic news, and it stunned them, and it amazed them, and it overwhelmed them, and they kept praising God over and over again. They could not believe that this was true. A number of them had actually seen Jesus crucified, and then days later, they miraculously saw that he had miraculously been made alive again. And just to be clear, they they didn't see a zombie Jesus. (laughs) They didn't see a Jesus that had a bunch of nasty rags hanging off of him and smelled like he hadn't bathed in three days. No, the, the Jesus they saw was vibrant. He was active. He was eating. He was hugging. He was praying. He was teaching. He was encouraging. See, these people were not praising God for a myth or a fairy tale. They weren't praising God for a fantasy legend. They were not praising God about an imaginary friend. They were praising God because of the person of Jesus. They were praising God because of the Savior and Redeemer of the world. This wasn't a subjective, personal attitude of theirs. This was their everything. Their everything. See, the risen Jesus became how they described beauty. When someone talked about beauty, they, oh, you mean, you mean Jesus. That was their definition. And the resurrection was not only changing their lives, the, the resurrection, it had meaning, it had value, it had worth, and it had deep and rich sustainability. What does that mean? Why, why would the resurrection of Jesus Christ have deep and rich sustainability? Here's why. We're still talking about it this morning. And we're not talking about it like it's a cute, neat religious story. We're talking about the resurrection of Christ with terminology of power. When people talk about the resurrection of Jesus today, it's with a mixture of love and and hatred. It's with a mixture of confusion and confidence. It's with a, a mixture of passion and wonder. And there's no person and there's no idea and there's no philosophy that has been talked about this way so consistently in so many corners of so many continents for so long. There's nobody like Jesus. 
And when you mention the name of Jesus in any corner and any continent of the world, it's not a boring subject. The resurrection is still changing hearts and changing minds. It's changing hearts and minds this morning as some of you studied about Naaman in Sunday school. It's changing hearts and and minds as some of you read this week in your Bible and your devotion time. It's it's changing hearts and minds even this morning as you've sung and, and prayed and are listening to God's Word. The resurrection is still changing lives. So, here's a question for you. How are you defining beauty in your life? How are you describing beauty in your life? Are you defining and describing it with a you know, $4,000 makeup plan? Are you defining it and describing it with a you know, $9,000 know, golf cart or, or ATV? Are you defining it by a garnet jersey or an orange jersey? Are you defining it by a new car or a new truck or a new SUV? Are you defining it by a a fantastic once-in-a-lifetime vacation trip or, or a beautiful stained-glass sanctuary? Are you defining beauty by a campaign that can make America stronger or a campaign that can make America great again? Look, all those things have their place and their time and their purpose, but none of those things have beauty that is unflinching and unswerving and unfading, and unfailing, and unlimited. That can only be found in the person of Jesus. See, only Jesus has that kind of beauty. The folks in the first church, man, they got that. They got it. They they knew there was something about this promise being fulfilled in Jesus that had changed everything. And they knew that all the promises that God had made with Jesus had one word associated with it, and that's yes. You see, the promise had been fulfilled. When they looked at Jesus, the risen Jesus, they knew all those prophecies, they all came true. They knew the penalty of sin had been satisfied. And now because Jesus had rose from the dead, they knew the pleasures of eternal life were now guaranteed, and all of those things were done in Jesus, in, in the person of Jesus. That's why we praise Jesus. And so what about us? If you're a Christian, how are you doing at praising Jesus? What does that look like in your life? And what about us as a church? I mean, if there's a historian, you know, in the community that's going to start writing about all the churches in the community, what would those historians write about us? Those early historians wrote, yeah, there's Those Christians, man, we can't quite figure them out, you know. They love in times that you shouldn't love. They're thankful in times that you shouldn't be thankful. If someone were to write about us, would they say, yeah, those people, man, they connect everything to Jesus. Man, they get together and and they worship Jesus. They're doing everything they can to encourage one another toward Jesus because the resurrection has changed their lives. Is praising Jesus the most important thing that we're doing? The first church, it was a big deal. (laughs) Praising Jesus was kind of a defining part of of who they were. So how do we move in that direction? And why should we? What's the big deal? I mean, isn't church enough on Sunday morning? Let's just do two or three songs and we're fine, right? Isn't that enough of praising Jesus? 
I mean, why is it so important that we praise Jesus? Why is it so important that we do that? And even more so, why is it so important that we do it together? Why can't we just have church in the backyard, you know, in our, in our lounge chair? Well, there's a lot of reasons, but I'm just going to give us one this morning. One reason why as we gather together here in this room and gather in each other's homes and, and gather at restaurants and gather in the parking lot while we should be people that praise Jesus. Here's, here's just one reason. Nancy Guthrie is an author. She's a counselor. She's a friend to a lot of people who are struggling with grief. A couple of years ago, she went to a funeral, and when she got home, she wrote down some thoughts after that funeral. And I just want to share just a handful of things that she said uh, in those thoughts. This is what she writes. When we sit at a funeral, I suppose few of us can resist allowing our thoughts to wander to thinking about who might show up when we are the one in the casket. We can't help but think about who will speak and what will be said. So I've decided to write it down. When I die, you won't have to wonder what I would have wanted. You'll know. You'll know that nothing would make me happier than for my funeral to be all about Christ instead of all about me. Make it about his coming to defeat death and not my courage or lack thereof in the face of death. Make it about his emergence from the grave with the keys to death and the grave which changes everything about putting my body into a grave. Sure, my name will come up. You can thank him for transforming me from a spiritually dead little girl into a spiritually alive and therefore indestructible co-heir with Christ. You can honor God for being true to his promise to cause all things to work together for my good and thank him for allowing me to see some of that good in my lifetime. You can shout praise to the God who raised Christ from the dead. You can mock the defeated desires of the devil by shouting that neither life nor death can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus, my Lord. You can cry at my funeral if you want to, but don't think for a minute that my death is tragic. No matter how it happens, no matter when, it simply can't be a tragedy. Leaving this world with all of its sin sickness to enter into the beauty and perfection and peace of the presence of Christ is something to anticipate, not avoid. Death for me will not be the second best option to a longer life here. To be with Christ will not be a minor improvement on this life, but far better. Far better. The reason we come to praise Jesus together is is because of that. See, we praise Jesus so that we can keep helping each other catch a glimpse of the risen Savior. We keep praising Jesus so that we can see that he really is deeply beautiful. We keep praising Jesus together so that on the moments when we are alone in our darkness, that we will realize that Jesus is not a minor improvement. But we praise Jesus to help each other see that Jesus is far better. So we praise the name of Jesus. We praise the name of Jesus. We praise the name of Jesus.